This episode is brought to you by Leica Sport Optics. We partner with Leica for many reasons, but one of them is because Leica recognise the need and importance of diverse and open discussion within the nature industry. They show this by creating a space at Global Bird Fair for Into the Wild to do our very own live episodes and have these very chats. I'm proud to have them behind the show and let's be honest, their optics are pretty mint too. Hello everyone and welcome to Into the Wild, your weekly podcast all about wildlife, conservation and nature. I am your host, Ryan Dalton. Thanks for clicking play on the pod and I am excited to say that this episode you're about to listen to was recorded live at Global Bird Fair 2022 in partnership with Leica Sport Optics. Lovely to be talking to you. Very excitingly, I'm sat here in the Leica Marquee at Global Bird Fair 2022, of course, um, where we're going to be recording live episodes for the very first time. How exciting. We've got a busy day prepped. We've got three episodes to record, and I'm sure we'll have other chats throughout the day. Um, my first one is in about half an hour's time. I'm going to be talking to Benedict MacDonald. Um, and then at midday, I'll be talking to Indy Green and George Hassel. And then later on, after that, I'll be talking to Leica Ambassador and filmmaker Maya Bambrick. But it's been nice to arrive. Me and Oscar got here. You all right, Oscar? Put your thumb up. No one can see that. That's just for me and Oscar to enjoy. Um, <laughs> but it's been a nice journey. We've arrived here. Um, Oscar's done all the setup. I'm not going to say we set up because I do very little. I just watch and say, can I do anything? And Oscar says, yes, can you move out the way? That's pretty much how the show works. But it's going to be nice. This is the first time we're doing episodes face-to-face with people, which I'm really looking forward to because this podcast started in my bedroom during lockdown where I thought, I'm bored. I like talking about nature. Let's see who's about. And two and a half years later, it, we're back at the first Global Bird Fair since the pandemic to do our live shows. And it's going to be so lovely just to connect with people on that on that human level. Do you know what I mean? Face to face. As an extrovert, that's exactly what I want. Um, so it's going to be really nice to be able to do that this weekend. And also meet some people that I've spoken to online for a couple of years, but never actually met. Um, there is also a bar. I saw a bar. Oscar, we're going to get a pint, all right? We are going to be drinking responsibly. And when I say responsibly, I mean, we'll keep the pints topped up. <laughs> oh yeah, Oscar's driving, so he will not be drinking. Um, disclaimer, don't drink and drive, be sensible. Oh my God, what am I talking about? Um, but I'm going to go now. We're going to get ready to uh, prep for our first episode. So I will check you guys in a bit. Right, well, welcome to the... This is the first episode we're recording live at Leica. I'm not sure the order I'm going to release them, so this might not be the first one <laughs> that comes out. But I'm sat here at Global Bird Fair in the Leica Marquee with my first guest, Mr. Benedict MacDonald. Um, hi, Benedict. How are you? Morning. I'm very good, thanks. Nice to be here. Yeah, lovely to have... As a, I was going to say, it's a lovely shirt. You've got a very appropriate Bird Fair shirt on. I haven't. <laughs> For the listeners, this is pointless, but Benedict's wearing the most fabulous bird silhouetted shirt. It's, it's very literal, but, you know, <laughs> at, least, at least there won't be any ambiguity that I am interested in birds, although having said that, I am at the bird fair. So, yeah, exactly. You know. But then look at my shirt, Hawaiian red shirt with surfboards on. It, it's am a I very strong place? shirt, though. You do look a little bit cool for someone working in the wildlife sector. <laughs> uh, but I'll, I'll let you off. I'm going to use that as a quote for the show. I think if we can get that... Can I use that as a quote? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. We can wave the trademark. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Um, well, welcome to the show. Lovely Thank to you. have you on. Should we start with the obvious question? Do you want to tell us who you are and what you do? Of course. Uh, I'm Benedict MacDonald. I'm a conservationist and author. Um, prior to that, worked in wildlife television for 10 years. And I'm now head of nature restoration at the Real Wild Estates Company, 
where we specialise in restoring land at scale, whether um, in the farmed environment, the wilder environments of Scotland, or even rewilding the brownfield environment close to people's homes. Amazing. And so natural world and nature has always been in like your life. This is a hard question, but have you got a favourite thing about the natural world? Is there something that you're like, that's the bit I love the most? I think for me it's, it's going to a place with a species in mind that you might not see and probably won't see. Something really elusive like a capercaillie, a goshawk maybe, a wild boar, and you sort of narrow the odds down, like very much like a hunter, like we would have done back yeah, in our yeah. sort of our Neanderthal spearing days, except of course you're hunting them with a pair of binoculars and a camera. And that sense of exhilaration when you finally close in on the species and you've kind of used your wits and a bit of luck and you have that amazing encounter with this animal that you never really thought you'd see yeah. is the thing that keeps you know, driving me to travel and go back into the field again and again, really. That's such a cool answer. I agree with that because sometimes because it, it's lovely when you don't expect it and it happens. But then also it's the same joy of when you go, right, let's prep everything. Let's get everything ready and go and try and find it. And it doesn't matter because it, if you don't find it, like you said, you still had that journey and that anxious excitement that if you do I think a lot of it's about the journey I mean if you go mm. looking for capercaillies these days in the Caledonian forest you're very sadly unlikely to see them but you're still going to see you know red squirrels crested tits yeah you might see a goshawk flashing through you might see a pine martin chasing a red squirrel and you're bound to have some amazing experience and you're completely right I think it's totally about the journey yeah um, for, for all of us really so real estates this is what we're talking about today we're going to be talking about this thousand acres and rewild estates. Can you start by telling us about where this idea came from? <clears throat> well, uh, when I said a thousand acres, that's literally we we are just coming into managing our first thousand acres. But I would hope that by the middle of next year, we could be much closer to twenty or thirty thousand acres and taking this into, well, some people call it rewilding, ecosystem restoration. Um, but we're very excited about our first site that we're beginning to manage um, down on the edge of Bodmin Moor in Cornwall. Mm. Um, it's it's uh, got two fantastic owners, very aspirational for returning nature uh, to a very denuded part of, of the Cornish environment. Yeah. And um, having sort of talked about this for a very long time, we're now beginning to put some of these ideas into practice. Amazing. Um, and so, I mean, this might be an obvious question, but apart from the nature restoration, what is the goal with this kind of work? What are you hoping to achieve from well, Real Wild Estates isn't an NGO. We're actually a business, and we do get a little bit of stick for this. People say, oh, you can't possibly do nature restoration as a, as, as a business. But I actually say, well, it's, I, I completely disagree, because if we can make restoring nature in the interests of landowners um, and farmers, if we can make it financially viable, yeah. guess what? More people are going to do it, and we're not going to see these false dichotomy arguments between nature restoration and farming making money. When you look at the economies of what we're doing, on average, we can create two and a half times better yields per year through rewilding than conventional farming. Wow. Now, you, you think about the implications for that in terms of opening up large areas of land where landowners suddenly realize, actually, not only is restoring nature something the public want, it's good for the, you know, the environment, of course, climate resilience. Yeah. It might protect my farm long into the future. But hang on a second, it's actually more lucrative than, than some of the more intensive destructive agricultural practices that we were doing on the holding before. So by using the economy as our ally, we're going to be able to make nature restoration much more successful and most importantly, do what we've never done in the UK to date, which is scale it up. It, it's so obvious that it needs to be a business for me. I think that's an obvious thing to say. I think when you look at other countries around the world where whether we're talking about a local community, uh, indigenous communities, 
or just rural people, as soon as there's an incentive to do so, that happens. You know, you have to have that incentive. If there's no incentive to do it, then people won't. I mean, if we look, even if we look at land, I mean, I'm talking maybe naively here, but if we look at the way some land is managed now with incentives to have sheep on the land, the result was there was sheep on the land. So as soon as you incentivize it, it happens. So surely we can use that model and go, well, look what happens when we do it the other way. Absolutely. So we're, we're working with a lot of landowners and, you know, the difference between the economies of sheep and the positive economies of carbon sequestered through natural regeneration, there's absolutely no comparison. It is now worth approximately eight times more to a landowner to have regenerating birch on their land than sheep. Yeah. And, of course, very positive externalities for everybody else as well. But you're completely right. And if we think about community engagement, this is a very general term. Now, I completely subscribe to supporting communities, but I also believe you have to be quite pragmatic and focused about what that means. If a community consists of a group of people and they don't have jobs and young people can't stay on the land, yeah. as is happening in most of rural Wales, as an example, very sadly, that community collapses. Over time, those people go into the cities and the villages become quieter and quieter. And that is what is being perpetuated by industrial intensive farming, particularly by sheep. Yeah. As soon as you begin to develop business models where you diversify the landscape, you begin to offer more job opportunities, greater community engagement, but also fundamentally, we can't wait for the entire capitalist system to fall into disrepair in order <laughs> to start rewilding the United Kingdom. Yeah. We need to work within the existing system, which has to recognize the validity of people's jobs, people's income, community engagement, and treating conservation like a business. What, what are the barriers with this, apart from maybe legislation and actually um, maybe, maybe certain things, are, there's a process to go through, but from a society point of view or from a landowner point of view, do you still find barriers with this kind of stuff? Do you still see fear of change or kind of refusal to accept any new plans? Yeah, so I'll give you a couple of examples. Generally speaking, if we're speaking to a grouse moor or deer estate where the owner is passing down to the next generation, we get an extremely positive response. If it's somebody who's spent their entire life manicuring an environment, whether for optimising large numbers of deer or large numbers of red grouse, nobody in their 70s really likes to have to accept that what they've been doing for the last 70 years may not have been the optimal thing to do. So there's quite a lot of denial and a lot of clinging on to tra tradition. And of course, our business model doesn't need to convince every single large estate owner yeah. <laughs> in the United Kingdom, for goodness sake. We only need to convince a significant minority. Then what you'll begin to see is far more NEP-type uh, projects springing yeah. up at a regional level and acting as inspiration. Suddenly, you've got landowners going around realizing their neighbors are making far more money from doing this than from grouse shooting yeah. um, or indeed upland farming and the model begins to spread. Yeah, so it's like a slow change rather than a snap, everyone's got to change now and a Absolutely. bit of a freak out. And the very important thing is, I'm not a campaigner, we run a business, we offer people things that are in their interests and in the interests of the natural world. Now, if they want to turn us down at the end of that, we just thank them for their time, have a cup of tea and leave. However, generally speaking, by the time you've really sat down with an estate owner, you've explained the economics, you've explained the ecological potential, you've talked about their concerns that they can't hand down the land yeah. to future generations because generally their children have got no interest in grouse shooting or any of these slightly outmoded um, pastimes. They generally listen to you much more carefully if you have a positive business offering than if you're going in there bashing them over the head yeah. for doing the wrong thing. I do love the fact that worst case scenario, it's a cup of tea 
that is the most British business plan. <laughs> exactly. I mean, yeah, except I don't actually drink tea. I drink coffee. But, you know, I mean, without, <laughs> minor, without minor exception, yes. <laughs> um, so for Rewild Estates as well, is this the business plan is from what I saw from the brochure, and I could be a little bit wrong on this, but is it a case of we can do this within reason no matter where, whatever land use you have, we, we can have a plan for you? Absolutely. So we, we have effectively three wings of our business. The first wing that we're most excited about is what I would call the full uh, rewilding package. These are areas that are not currently producing our food, deer estates, grouse moors, areas that are coming into new ownership where um, the clients and landowners specifically want nature restoration as a viable land use. My job is to map out a 15-year ecological roadmap to recovery, often really taking that landscape, breaking it apart, and almost starting from scratch in many cases, which is what you've got to do. You've got to rootle pig, uh, sheep fields, you've got to really get deer numbers down, you've got to do some things that you may not necessarily want to do, like cull deer, but you have to do if you want the positive outcomes, like getting the trees back. Yeah. To simplify, but that's broadly speaking, what we're doing in the first few years is damage reversal. However, underpinning that are the economics. Uh, we use a very, very highly diverse form of modelling, where we model everything from carbon to extensive grazing um, to ecotourism, all into a single uh, financial model. Now, when we compare that financial model against the net incomes of even wealthy shooting estates in Northern England, there is no comparison. Our model is demonstrably better and makes landowners more money. So it's that combination of the ecological and the economical that mm. is making us quite effective in maybe breaking some of these conservation deadlocks that NGOs haven't been able to break in the past. That's amazing. And what I like, what the other thing I like to see from the brochure as well, and I think this is something that I've, I, I've said it on the show before, I've, I've kind of realized myself in the last couple of years of how much people are at the heart of nature still you know no matter where you are you are part of it um would you say that's the same for rewild estates that people are at the heart of this Ab absolutely everything we're doing is geared towards respect for both new and existing landowners for farmers and even unpopular as it may seem with some listeners with gamekeepers um some of our most promising potential um employees or people working uh, very, very loosely under my sort of guidance and management are, are gamekeepers because they're extremely practical. They know the land. We need deer to be kept under control. Yeah. We may, if we've got a fragile population of curlews, still need to be employing some proto-predation, so keeping crow numbers down in the absence of those original apex predators like goshawk and eagle owl. Yeah. Uh, we may need to do the same with foxes in the absence of the lynx and the wolf that used to keep fox numbers much lower than they are yeah. in the British Isles at the moment. For all of those tasks, you can work extremely well with conventional um, land managers, albeit setting very unconventional goals for nature restoration. And now we're finding down on our site in, in Bodmin Moor, we're very privileged to be working with um, the landowners of Hamatethi Farm. Uh, there's a brilliant stockman there who's really excited about the possibility of free roaming pigs, which of course will rootle the land, they'll bring new life into the soil. But of course, that is also, you know, until the 1950s, free roaming pigs were simply a facet of the farmed environment. We're using them more in the capacity of replicating many of the actions of wild boar. But at the same time, that is still a recognisable outcome that a farmer can look at and go, OK, I can get behind that. I'm not being driven off the land. I'm not being cleared 
I'm not being ignored. Absolute job security, and that's incredibly important that we keep full-time employees on the land. And I think, so to answer your question in brief, absolutely, people lie at the heart of what we do. And you cannot rewild most landscapes in the UK without intensive management. Now, that may sound a very strange thing to say. Yeah. You know, you say, well, surely you just let nature get on with it. But actually, if you break it down, you are and you aren't doing that. You are reinstating ecological processes. You are letting beavers look after your coppicing. Yeah. You are letting cattle look after your naturalistic grazing. You are letting pigs create little wallows and amphibian ponds rather than digging them yourself. However, the more game you have, the more keeping is necessary. The more animals you have, you need to look after them. We can't simply live in a country where we just release a volume of (laughs) cattle and Tamworth pigs and just (laughs) expect them to get on with it. And even if you look at areas like NEP, um, or particularly NEP, the, the jobs creation side of things has gone through the roof. Because there's so much going on in the landscape, from naturalistic grazing to, you know, ecotourism to all of these things. You actually have more jobs on the land than in a very conventional intensive farm, where a lot of the processes that these days are mechanised. I, I, I did feel it quite interesting and almost like I saw a lack of division in the brochure as well when you did include those hunting sites. Because I think sometimes in the wildlife conservation sector that... You know, we, we talk about the importance of keeping communities and jobs, but as soon as we mention hunting, that seems to end there. We, we sometimes seem to not include that. But what I liked about the brochure is going, we still recognise that as a need and an importance of a land use, if nothing else. Um, so do you think there's great promise in these kind of lands? I do. I mean, I've, I've been to so many countries where hunting and shooting are simply very low-intensity pastimes that harvest a sustainable surplus out of a replete environment. Now, I'm not saying we have that in this country. I'm saying we could have that in this country. So at Real Wild Estates, for example, we, we broadly speaking, we have a business package that we call the Black Grouse Moor. Now, if you break that down, that's replacing burning with naturalistic grazing. Horses, of course, are very good at taking dead vegetation off the land. Yeah. They've been doing it for many millions of years. We don't need to be burning our uplands, extremely destructive practice. We're looking at natural regeneration of trees like birches and willows on our moors. But we're also recognizing that fundamentally the concept of using a a private hunting estate to protect land is the only reason that we have the new forest at all. That was effectively William the Conqueror's rewilding experiment, except he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have used those words a thousand Imagine years ago. Imagine if he did, that would have been brilliant to have that it, in records, wouldn't it? It would have been excellent. It would have been a real endorsement for the business, or, or maybe, maybe not. But yeah. No, no, generally speaking, I think we need to be very pragmatic about keeping land out of being intensively farmed when it isn't at the moment and keeping it out of being built upon, covered in wind turbines or covered in Sitka spruce. Yeah. So fundamentally, we have to acknowledge that our hunting estates have at least achieved that. But what we need to do now is move radically away from effectively farming the landscape for red grouse towards a much more diverse outcome where we have many more species on our moorlands and everybody can enjoy them. But in a democracy, I think it would be a little bit undemocratic of me to say that just because I don't enjoy going out and taking one or two red grouse myself that I should outlaw anyone in society from doing that. Um, I'm not really interested in that hard line. I'm much more interested in the outcome. And for me, the outcome is diverse, birch-studded moors with cranes, hen harriers, golden eagles, red grouse, black grouse, beavers, all in the Pennines in my lifetime. And what I've just described is eminently possible 
when you consider that a lot of landowners are now already turning the corner. That's amazing. And ecotourism is something we, I, I, I think, I mean, I, I guess I'm talking personally here, but I always assume it's something that doesn't happen in this country and happens abroad. But is that something that you, you see happening more in the UK as, as time starts to change? I think ecotourism is, like, like anything in the rural economy, there is no magic bullet. The best way to approach any, any landscape is through diversification. However, the better the landscape, the more revenue you can bring in through ecotourism. And if you run a really well-run, uh, even a couple of lets, that you can keep open throughout seasonality, marketing your attractions carefully, you've got a diverse landscape, so there's always something going on, even yeah. in the depths of winter, then that is a very lucrative thing to do. And of course, you're creating local employment opportunities in the accommodation sector and the catering sector. And when we look at the areas where ecotourism has been given a chance because the landscape is good enough to support it, so places like the Spey Valley, uh, the Isle of Mull, the Cromarty Firth, where dolphin watching generates an extraordinary amount of income for local people, ecotourism can be incredibly successful. But it's something of a truism to say that if there isn't something really good to go and see, <laughs> then people aren't going to go and see it, which is probably why you find that in Africa, it's, it's a given that ecotourism can underpin a rural economy. In Britain, there's a lot of scepticism about it. Well, of course there is, because we haven't really started restoring landscapes at scale. So we've got to get past that first point, really, of, of that restoration, and then we're going to hopefully have more reasons to go out there. Absolutely. And I mean, if we look at places like, you know, Loch Arton, for example, you know, a pair of ospreys, well marketed by the RSPB, bringing over £5 million into the rural economy. That's yeah. an extraordinary trickle-down economics, where the money is staying in local communities, and keeping the local community incentivized about protecting and restoring nature in the Spey Valley and the Caledonian Forest. That's a fantastic model for the future that I would love to see upscaled and applied in other parts of the UK as well. And do you think plans like this help connect people more with nature, um, including tackling such issues as right to roam, something that is, is in the media more and more for people in this country? You know, we know the value of connection with nature, we know the value of being able to just explore and go somewhere. Do you think these kind of plans can help change that and work with Right to Rome to encourage that? I think so. I, I think, you know, I, I may take a slightly different view on that to some people because I've been mm. to many parts of the world where if you said to someone in Yellowstone National Park or the Naiboshu Conservancy in the Masai Mara or indeed the Luangwa Valley in Zambia, any of the most amazing places I've been, mm. we just want to let, you know, potentially hundreds of thousands of people walk across the whole place and disturb all the ground-nesting birds. Mm. Most conservationists in the world and national park authorities would say, hang on, that doesn't sound like a very good idea. Yeah. So I think we should be encouraging a lot more right roam. At the same time, I think we need to recognize there are certain areas and certain species, and I'm thinking particularly of the Capacalli, that are being driven to extinction through a combination of dog walkers, electric bikes, constant disturbance. Yeah. We do have species in this country, particularly great bustard, black grouse, Capacalian golden eagle that really, really don't appreciate um, our human sensibilities when it comes to right to roam. Mm. We do need wilderness areas and we do need to be unafraid to say, look, sorry, sorry, everybody, this is an area where nature needs to recover right. in peace. And we need to balance that, in my view, with right to roam in terms of breaking down these kind of, oh, you can't come in here because it's a private wood for pheasants, we're not really going to tell you anything more than that. You just have to accept that. <laughs> Don't doesn't, ask any questions. <laughs> doesn't strike me as a good reason. However, being told, I'm, you know, 
sorry folks, but this area of Abernethy Forest has to be fenced and off limits for five years or we are going yeah. to lose this extraordinary charismatic bird whose legs are being disturbed. That strikes me as a fairly good reason to put right of home on hold, but in very specific areas of the UK. Yeah, so it's almost localised, isn't it? Very localised. But, I mean, one of the things that really interests me is access for people of limited mobility. Yeah. We often talk about socioeconomic factors, but a lot of our moorlands, you know, are still, even in their current state, I'd love to see more wildlife on them, amazing places with curlews, lapwings, merlins, and they're incredibly hard to get to. Yeah. So I think we've got to really think carefully about, you know, what is right to roam? Okay, for, for me, uh, as, a, as a fit young person, it's being allowed into places. But if you're somebody in a, in a wheelchair, for example, yeah. it's very much about getting onto those places to begin with. Mm. And I think the RSPB would be brilliant on this, um, Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust. But I think we need to be looking, at, certainly at real wild estates, we're looking at a 7,000-acre estate in Scotland that we'll be managing from next year very much with a view to improving physical access That's in terms amazing, of boardwalks, yeah. um, getting people up into areas that they that maybe nobody's pushed a wheelchair in a very long time. That's amazing. And I think we are a long way behind Scandinavia on this, and we really need to catch up. Before I get on to my last question, we need to talk about your new book. So <laughs> I'm going to let you introduce this, because I'm excited to hear more about it. Oh, well, thank you. Well, Cornerstones is my third book. My first was Rebirding. Uh, my second was um, Orchard, a seasonal diary in Herefordshire. This, this book really takes to task the idea that only humans can manage landscapes. Yeah. I want British conservationists in particular who are wedded to this idea that if they don't do something, it won't happen, to think far more seriously about the potential of beavers, of lynx, yeah. of free-roaming cattle and horses, to really understand wild boar, to understand what these animals do these animals are not just passive forces or pretty-looking animals that float around within ecosystems. These animals create ecosystems yeah. to maximal ecological advantage. And, you know, let's just finally end, end on this with whales and puffins. We are now looking at the potential extinction of the puffin, Britain's best-loved bird, in my lifetime. The only way, in my view, we can truly save the puffin is to encourage as many whales into our seas and oceans as possible. How does that work? Well, yeah, good <laughs> the book will explain in detail. However, <laughs> and it's available at all. <laughs> and it's available on Amazon and here at the Bird Fair later on today. But no, no, Cornerstones makes the point that whales can create food chains, entire trophic cascades right. from scratch. They vector iron into the photic zone, which creates the basis of phytoplankton. Phytoplankton feeds zooplankton. Zooplankton eventually feeds sand eels, and sand eels feed puffins. And whales in large numbers, as we're seeing in Alaska, can reboot entire areas of the ocean ecosystem from scratch. And that is an extraordinary thought. No other animal can do that. Human beings cannot do that. And so when we come back to saving the puffin, what do we need in brief? We need whales back in our seas in the numbers that we had 300 years ago. It's always a majestic animal, isn't it? Whenever we talk about these animals that can be these corner points or key species, they're always like something majestic like a whale. Like just, I, just, I don't know why. Am I projecting there? On I don't. I know. I think you're largely right, but except, of course, fungi and bees. Yeah. You may. <laughs> okay, I wouldn't necessarily. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily describe bees as majestic, but the, the slow motion they can be. Well, that's very true. <laughs> yeah. But um, no, I mean, one of the chapters is on bees, and we always say. Uh, well, you know, wouldn't it be a shame if we lost bees? But I don't think many people even really understand mm. the 
catastrophic implications of bee loss. There are places in China where they have eradicated bees so completely oh that humans now have to go around and pollinate every flower by hand. That's mad. It is a horrible is dystopia mad. that we are facing here in Britain, particularly if we bring back neonicotinoids, but also if we don't get on top of building nature into the farmed yeah. environment. It's not just about the whales, it's not just about the lynx, it's about the bioabundance of small creatures is also absolutely vital to rebuilding our ecosystems from the bottom up. And the last question is the into the wild question is, if you could just pass on one bit of specific advice onto everyone on the planet regarding the natural world, no matter how specific, what would you say? I would say be ambitious. We're very good in this country at protecting the little we have left, but we need to be constantly thinking, what could we have? You know, how can we become world leaders in restoring the natural world, whether that's beavers, Dalmatian pelicans, cranes, lynx, big, big areas given over to nature. And if we lead the way, then I think that's a pretty good place to start. Amazing. Benedict, thanks so much for coming on the show. Pleasure to meet you. Can't wait to read the new book. And yeah, enjoy the rest of your weekend here at Birdfair. Thanks very much. Lovely to chat. Thanks for having me. Thanks again for listening, everyone. If you'd like to keep up to date with the guests that have appeared in today's Into the Wild episode, then you can do so on social media. Their tags are in the write-up of this episode. Also, you can follow us on social media at Into the Wild Pod on Twitter and Into the Wild Podcast on Instagram. And if you'd like to get in touch about Into the Wild or ask any questions or suggest any ideas for some episodes, you can email me at intothewildpod at gmail.com. A quick note to say that all the opinions and expressions expressed in today's episode belong to the person that said them and do not represent those opinions held by Into the Wild or anyone that we work with or are affiliated with. Into the Wild always aims to be a free show, however running it is not free. If you'd like to support us and say thanks, then you can do so by buying me a coffee. Our Ko-fi link is in the write-up of this episode. Until next time, keep well, stay safe and live the good life.